Quest of Bliss, a podcast about finding light in the darkness. This episode was produced by Cappy Productions. If you're like me and you hate the grind of finding new bands but love when you find them, I have a recommendation for you. After Dark is sponsoring today's show, and they are fantastic. So if you're anything like me, go check them out. Check out Colors is probably the first one I'll recommend. After that, my second favorite's probably Break Away. Highly recommend them. Spotify After Dark. Hello and welcome back to the Conquest of Bliss. This is Kara Fernstrom, of course, your host, and I am here with R.C. Hand, author of Adventures of the Smith Family. How are you today, R.C.? Great. Thank you very much. That's fantastic. I'm so excited to talk to you today. You have lived quite a life, and it's pretty cool. So do you want to just start by telling a little bit about sort of your background and some of the adventures of the Smith family? <laughs> well, I grew up in a family that was uh, self-employed. Yep. And my father uh, worked on Disneyland as a plasterer in Anaheim. And uh, we lived in a mobile home park right next to it. And that was his last union plastering job. And he went to bid a job on plastering a vacant restaurant. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we took that over and ran a, he, t- he ran a Mexican restaurant for 10 years. And we lived in the Mexican community. So I'm bilingual to some degree. And he was very much bilingual. And so we, that's my background. We grew up as a working family. We had a family business. That's so cool. And I've always like, I've always loved stories like that. Okay. So as you grew up, what happened next? Well, uh, my father started a, a little plastering business because the restaurant business is very difficult. And when the economy goes down, the restaurants are the first to go down. Mm-hmm. So we started a little uh, plastering business and that took off. And I worked with my father from the time I was 10 years old, both in the restaurant and in the plastering business. And uh, we ran that until uh, he retired. I was 28. And I took over the business and ran it for 38 years. Um, which one is that? The plastering business? or yes, the plastering business. We eventually got out of the restaurant business uh, because the plastering business took off. And then he retired and I ran the business for 38 years. Very small business. I had one employee. That's that's fantastic. I love like that you just kind of got to follow in your father's footsteps. And so can you tell me a little bit about how this transformed into, into some of the adventures that you told me about before the show? How did you end up doing the travel and stuff? Well, my, my second wife, her uncles were all tour guides. And <laughs> she, she was in the Navy. My wife was one of the first female navigators in the U.S. Navy. Oh. And and uh, unluckily for her, she was in before they allowed women on board ship. So she did all uh, shoreside duties. But she lived in Italy for a year. And her father was a Londoner. So she traveled to England as a, as a young child and as a teenager. And with her uncles coming home to stay with them at different times from places all over the world, she uh, got the travel bug. And <laughs> when we were married, I was... Uh, brought into this family of travelers and, and enjoyed the privileges of traveling, having my wife uh, take me all over the world. That's fantastic. And just for the audience's sake, and I mean, I think most people can tell you because of your accent, but you're, you're based in America, right? Yes, I live in Southern California. My wife is uh, an American. My father-in-law left England as a young boy. And uh, my wife still has family in England that we go to see and visit fairly regularly. Uh, we lost a trip when COVID started. In March, we were going to London again, and we missed that trip. 
and we've lost several trips during COVID, as most people have, but uh, luckily we remained healthy and we have uh, nothing to complain about, that's for sure. That's fantastic. I, um, I'm i not even a traveler and I missed a trip, so I feel like that says a lot um, about uh, about what COVID did. Um, so in your travels, because like, like it's really cool, Like, so can you share with the audience how many places that you've been? Well, I've, we've been to 91 countries. We've been to all seven continents. We've been to North Korea, uh, Mongolia, uh, uh, the five stands. Uh, we went to Brazil for a carnival for uh, our anniversary. We've been to the Galapagos Islands. We've been to India twice. Uh, so we've been to a lot of places. Yeah, a few of those definitely jump out at me, and I'm sure that they jump out at a lot of people, because I didn't know that you could travel to Antarctica. I didn't know oh, that sure. that was allowed. <laughs> oh, sure. There's tours there. Uh, and I, I imagine, I'm not, for, I'm not certain of this, but I'm pretty sure they have a limited number of people they allow per year, as with the Galapagos Islands. They try to re, uh, restrict it to a certain number so that the, in, the habitat is not damaged. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a possibility. But uh, if you if you plan ahead, I'm sure you can get a spot on a ship that will take you to Antarctica. That would be just fantastic. I I I don't know why I love the idea of going to places that you're like that nobody goes to. Um, yeah. And how? Okay, so you, I gotta know how did you end up going to North Korea? Because that is wild. Well, my wife and I discuss our travels, mm-hmm. and my wife uh, goes through the catalogs. And she came across a company in Chicago that offered that trip. And we want to go to all, we wanted to go to all the communist countries to see how they functioned and what it was like to live in that type of environment. Mm-hmm. And she came across this trip that was being organized and they needed uh, uh, enough people to make the trip viable. Mm-hmm. And the first year we were scheduled to go was when the famine occurred in North Korea. And so we had two years of gathering enough people to make a trip to North Korea. We ended up with with 13 people. And one of the people that went with us was a female uh, columnist who worked for the Los Angeles Times. Mm -hmm. And she went with us and she did an expose of the life in North Korea, I guess, when she came back. And she traveled under a quasi-false identity Mm -hmm. uh, because they have dossiers on you. When you arrive there, they have a pretty good background of who you are. And uh, I was a plastering and drywall contractor, and I can remember watching our our, uh, guides, uh, using that term loosely, uh, (laughs) looking at my dossier and wondering why would a plasterer drywall man want to come to North Korea? (laughs) And uh, my wife worked in in a supermarket. Uh, She was a retail clerk. So we're just blue-collar working people. And they probably wondered what in the heck uh, were these people doing here. Most of the people on our trip were uh, educators, uh, college professors, and high school teachers, and historians, and the like. That's incredible. So I have a couple of follow-up questions, because you mentioned wanting to see the communist countries. So I, uh, from what I've heard, and again, I, I, I'm not a huge traveler myself, not, not out of lack of desire, just priorities are different, but um, there's two kinds of travelers. There's people who always go to the tourist touristy parts, you know, and enjoy that. And then there tend to be people who go and try to dive into the culture as much as they can. Do you, or or some people are in between, do you have a sort of side that you prefer? We're both of those. We love taking organized bus tours with a docent and we learn about the history of the country we're in. I don't see much use in going someplace if you don't learn from those with the information Mm -hmm. at hand. 
So we love going on group tours and meeting people from all over the world and making friends and then going on this uh, educational adventure together. It's, uh, you learn a lot from the people you travel with as well as where you're going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, the, so do you ever like ever end up, I mean, obviously not in North Korea, cause I know there's tons of restrictions, but like if you went to somewhere like uh, Cuba or something, you know, do you, do you spend much time with the locals as well? Yes, and I speak Spanish, so I can uh, communicate with people. Uh, in North Korea, you're not allowed to talk to the locals, and I don't speak any Korean, so that worked out pretty well. <laughs> uh, I have been to Cuba, and uh, that was an interesting trip. We went with a licensed company. We went while the restrictions were enforced that uh, didn't allow Americans or restricted mm-hmm. Americans to go to Cuba. But we went with a company that had a license for historical and educational tours, so every day we had a meeting and had docents talking about architecture and history. And we saw a lot of interesting things. We went to a few musical events. We went to Hemingway's house. My wife got to sit in Papa Hemingway's chair. Oh. Uh, there was a uh, impromptu concert uh, in, in Havana one evening. And the guide told us if they would have known, if the populace would have known that the band was going to perform, there would have been 100,000 people in the park because it's not a it's a rare event to have a band uh, get together and perform in in public. Oh, that's so interesting. And I I completely forgot about the restrictions on Cuba when I when I picked Cuba because in Canada that didn't apply, right? So That's correct. That's um, correct. <laughs> we met some people from England and Canada on our trip. I actually uh, I have a I have an AA degree in criminology and I actually took 100 syringes with us. We took a bunch of, we had a suitcase of medical supplies to take to the Cubans. Oh. And and uh, I was a little bit concerned about having all these syringes because it's <laughs> not legal for a, a, a layperson, a non-doctor or non-diabetic to have a bunch of syringes. But we got through LAX and got to Cuba with them. And we had bought a lot of over-the-counter medications for people there. And I actually had a meeting and delivered some uh, equipment to the children's hospital in Havana. Uh, we brought uh, uh, some items that they didn't have, and they were very happy to take them off our hands. That's beautiful. I'm I'm so happy to happy to hear that you had that opportunity and that you were able to like. A lot of people are not willing to take risks for other people um, without a reward for themselves. So I'm glad that you that you did that. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about because you've got this huge breadth of knowledge, and I'm sure that it informs your writing as well. But I'm also sure that it informs your your mindset, your view on the world. Do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, some of the big changes that happened from pre, you know, intensive traveling to post intensive traveling, things that you understand differently because of having exposure to so many cultures? Well, I play tennis every day. I have a, a large group of younger people that I play tennis with, and none of us have become ill through COVID, even though they locked the tennis courts down uh, in the different cities. So I'm out every day. I play handball on Thursdays, and uh, I've lost my connections. My wife and I volunteered at a, ho- uh, at a hospital for several years nearby us pushing the coffee cart. So we've met a lot of interesting people there, and we've lost that uh, temporarily. We've lost those connections with those friends of ours. Um, I still get out every day to play tennis. I read every day. I write every day. I've just finished another uh, a novel, and uh, I'm working on a couple. I I'm a little. I was a hyperactive child, so I work on two or three novels at the same time. Uh, my first novel took five years to complete, 
because I was writing other novels at the same time. <laughs> and I write a, a, about many different things. And my, my childhood and my growing up environment has made me a very self-reliant person. My, my parents, my father was self-employed. So mm -hmm. I come from a background, my brother was self-employed. I come from a background where we all work for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so that is a little different mindset than most. I don't yeah. have the office camaraderie that I had that a lot of workers have, but I had uh, many, many people that I saw on a regular basis who managed apartments who I would come periodically to work in those complexes. So I had a circle of friends that I would see periodically mm -hmm. and I had a vast number of people who I would meet every day. And so I was exposed to all different races, ideas and all those things. And I got a chance to impart some of my silly ideas on them as well. Oh, I don't think your ideas are silly. You're a fascinating person to talk to. Um, so, so I guess like, so, okay. Globally, sort of there's this paradigm, and I don't necessarily know how true it is, but that a lot of Americans don't travel very much. So when you came back to America with this understanding of the world that was much bigger than some of your peers, did that have very much of an effect when you were talking to uh, fellow Americans? I think so. I always, I think travel uh, is like life. You know, you get from travel what you put into it, like life. Mm -hmm. uh, we go, we go looking for uh, to learn something. We don't go with a preset idea of that, that America does everything the best. Every country does some things better than America does, and I could give you a, a short list if you wanted. Uh, however, comma, uh, we go with an open mind and we learn things. Every time we travel somewhere, we make a point to go to museums. We make a point to go out to eat. We usually arrive two or three days ahead of time to get used to the time change. So we walk the cities. We're big walkers. Mm -hmm. So we walk the towns and cities that we're in. So we've already met people in the local area. We've got a lay of the land. We've usually been to one or two places that we return to during the tour. And so... Um, I think that getting out before you join the tour is a good way to see uh, what people are like and get a sense of how they're feeling. I'm always surprised, and I don't know why, but it's true. I'm always surprised how welcoming people are to Americans. And I guess that's because uh, my wife and I are open and welcoming to the people we come to visit. Yes, I think that that's so true. Like, I think, unfortunately, um, I have a lot of friends who are Americans, and unfortunately, Americans get a really bad rap globally. Um, but, you know, most people that I've, like, like as I, I like 99% of the Americans that I know, personally. Um, like, I, I've had very, I've had a lot more issues with fellow Canadians than I have with Americans. Um, but I... Uh, I think that that's, that's true everywhere is that it can be very enlightening to realize that all the stuff you hear isn't necessarily accurate. Like you hear rumors about Americans being rejected, not allowed in bars, all this stuff all over the world. Sure. And that's not true. <laughs> you know, if I you're have coming, to, that's right. I have to say two things. First of all, Canadians are the best people to travel with. They have the most fun. They're the most open. They're the best travelers. So if you're going to go on a trip, make sure you get a couple of Canadians thrown in there. Uh, and the other thing is that, yes, you you get what you put out there. And uh, we want to learn. This is my my life adventure is a learning adventure. And I'm open to what people have to say. And, and of course, uh, the language barrier is a problem. But 
luckily for us, a lot of countries speak English as a, as a second language or a primary language. So it's very easy to communicate with people in different countries because a lot of people have learned English. We're very mm-hmm. fortunate in that regard. Absolutely. And and fortunateness, that's a weird way to put it, but that's actually something that I wanted to talk to you a little bit about is I think, I think that we all struggle, um, and maybe I'm being too broad by saying that, but I know that I and a lot of people that I know struggle with understanding how good we have it, you know, um, and and understanding like, you know, I know a lot of people don't like the word privilege. A lot of people really dislike the word privilege because it implies, I don't know, I don't know why people dislike it so much. But regardless of what you call it, you know, Canadians and Americans are some of the luckiest people on the planet. and. Absolutely. And so can you can you just speak a little bit to that idea and some of the things that you've learned, maybe some of the things that surprised you that you didn't realize were privileges? Well, first of all, it's important to understand how important geography is into your country's history and view of the world. We're both Canadians and Americans are isolated from the rest of the world throughout history, not so much now, but in the ancient and medieval times, we didn't have... Uh, burgeoning population or culture other than the American Indians and the South American Indians. And we didn't have neighbors close by that hated and despised us and were trying to kill us all the time, as Mm -hmm. in Europe and Asia and Africa. So that's the beginning of a different mindset to start with. You know, the word vendetta comes from the Vandals uh, running through uh, Northern Europe and and, uh, Central Asia, destroying everything they came across. America's and Canadians didn't face that. And so uh, you have people who have uh, thousands of years of disagreements with each other in Europe and Asia. Mm-hmm. America is a young country. We don't have that. We've created uh, disagreements in modern times with different countries through our politics and perhaps uh, misguided intervention. Uh, and no good deed goes unpunished. But uh, we have, uh, in fact, because we're so distant from those countries, they don't have a lot of close contact with us. And as I say on my travel blog, you are the representative for your country and you have to behave yourself, live uh, within the standards of the countries you're traveling in. If you're in a Muslim country and your women are supposed to be at least have their shoulders covered, please do that when you go into a mosque. Don't be rude and, and uh, annoying. When you go someplace, do a little research and understand how you're supposed to comport yourself. And uh, you'll you'll be much better off and have people be much friendlier to you, I think. Yeah, that's a really good point, especially about the Middle Eastern countries. And that's one of the things there's a lot of debate around. And, and I really loved what you said about understanding that these cultures are much older than ours. Absolutely. These cultures have existed for a really long time and these things are not simple. You know, it's not a case of like everybody who believes those things hate women necessarily. No. A lot of a lot of women in the Middle East actively choose to participate in modesty. Now, whether or not they do, though, it's not our place to go and tell them that they're doing it wrong. I think that's a really, really good point. I think so. I think that uh, in one of my books, I discussed that, that, that uh, I have a book that's called Sailing Away, which is a follow-up novel to my novel, The Adventures of the Smith Family. And it's a trip through the Mediterranean and down to the tip of, of uh, Africa. And we discuss being in a Muslim country where my main character is an Englishman and he has a love relationship with a black Moroccan Muslim. And the issues of her coming to live in England uh, and how that kept them from consummating their relationship and being married and her coming to live in England during the 18th century. The, the climate's different. The culture's different. 
and they decided not to marry because of those differences. Uh, and he understood that and he respected that and he he realized that those were things that were gigantic obstacles into their life together and was willing to give up that relationship so that she could marry someone perhaps of her own culture. Now this is in the 18th century where people weren't as flexible as they are now. Mm -hmm. And that book discusses the slave trade. It discusses the uh, history of the Mediterranean because I've been to many of those countries. So I use my travels and my experiences and my understanding of those areas. I put them in this book for people to see in a novel setting but it's a historical dissertation on culture and behavior and why countries are the way they are. We hear uh, that uh, that Henry Ford created the assembly line. That's not true. The Italians had assembly lines for building sailing vessels, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So yeah. there's nothing new. There's nothing new under the under the sun. It's just that Americans don't always have all the information. Uh, Americans don't have the time, perhaps, to study history like people did a hundred years ago when they weren't running around every five minutes doing something. Uh, and once you retire, as I have, you have a different set of criteria. You have a different timetable to uh, read and and learn things. If if I'm not if I'm not playing tennis, I don't know what day of the week it is. <laughs> I have a set schedule. I read for a couple hours. I try to read for a couple hours every day. I write for a couple hours every day. And then I play my tennis and get out and we do things. But when you're working, that's hard to do. You don't mm -hmm. have time to gather information. Well, and that's a really good point. Um, just just because I want to relate a little bit. Yeah, I, if I weren't for my partner, because my work is all over the map. It's a little different, but it's all over the map. I wouldn't know a day of the week it is either, but he's a carpenter. So he is. There you go. Very he has to know. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but one of the things that is really uh, jumping out to me about what you're saying is is a concept I'm very familiar with, and 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 maybe you can speak to this because you have a, uh, you have more experience than me, um, both in where you've been and and when you've been. So I've been noticing that even you know in my lifetime there has been it just seems like every year there's more responsibility put on everyone, not even responsibility, expectations put on on each individual person especially working people um because you know you add in now you have to understand zoom you have to understand linkedin you have to understand all of these different areas on top of still having to work 40 hours a week on top of still needing to maintain a clean home and as less and less people are married and stuff like that it's gotten more complicated at least from from my point of view now you had you have this huge breadth of experience that's just so beautiful can you speak to that transition at all have you noticed that? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. The words, the world gets uh, moves quicker every every year. Things are moving faster. Communications are faster. The you know we have the new technology for storing information in crystal on computers now. That's just coming forward. Uh, once you retire, that changes. I was self-employed. I always I did five or six different jobs at different locations every day, six days a week. Oh, I had a very strict timetable. I was always 10 minutes early to everywhere I was supposed to be. And I had a stomachache for 20 years trying to make sure I was where I was supposed to be and doing a job, doing it right, keeping my customers happy. My lively, that was my livelihood. Mm -hmm. And my, uh, my family's fortunes rested on my work ethic. And uh, as a human being, if you're in a relationship we all take on certain responsibilities and those 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 responsibilities change over time as culture changes i come from a different time i was i'm 70 years old so my idea of the way 
the world was is completely different than the way that it is now. Mm-hmm. And so people your age never experienced what I experienced growing up. You grew up in a different, totally different environment. Uh, I still have issues with, te- with technology. Uh, I'm not very good at it. I, I was a plasterer by trade. I worked with hand tools. Uh, you know, the Egyptians plastered the inside of pyramids. That, that trade didn't change much over 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. So in that, in that way, I was a, a craftsman in an ancient, in an ancient trade. And so here I'm working in a world that's spinning around me at a thousand miles a second with people. I just retired just as I set up my website for my business. So I retired <laughs> just in the nick of time. <laughs> that's that's perfect. And that's a good point about the whole ancient trade thing, because a lot of trades, even if the trade itself, like carpentry, is is very old, obviously, like, you know, like Jesus was said to be a carpenter, Absolutely. but he was not using, you know, a DeWalt um, a DeWalt power saw. Okay. And he couldn't go down and buy nails someplace. Yeah. Well, so I guess that, he could, but someone had to make him by hand first. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. And I mean, here, I don't even think we do plastering here. I think we just do drywall. I haven't seen plaster in a long time here. Well, I did repair. So that's what I was doing, going and repairing mm. older buildings. And very few homes are plastered anymore for any, any number of reasons. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm thinking about it, my best friend, her old place that she had owned was, uh, had laugh and plaster yes. in one of the rooms. And she's like, oh my God, this is a nightmare. I don't know how to deal with it. <laughs> um, that's fascinating. So I guess speaking to what we were talking about before with the, um, the, the changing world and stuff like that, you know, you, you have a bit of an edge having traveled because I know that that is not true for every culture. Lots of cultures, there's still like, um, like there's island time and there's a lot more space in people's lives. And, and do you, do you find that that affected your ability to create that space for yourself or was coming back to America and back into the culture just kind of snapped it right back into that sort of high stress well, I think because I always work for myself, I have that opportunity to unwind once I retired. While I was working, my office was in my home, so I never really could sit through the evening without getting a phone call from a customer. Mm-hmm. But once I retired, uh, it took me a day to uh, change mode from work to retirement. Oh. I did not have any issues with that other than all my customers were my friends. And so I was afraid that I would lose that social connection with them. And with a lot of them, I have, but I still maintain some contacts with those. And the, the benefit is you make new friends. And most of my friends are quite a bit younger than I am. And the first thing I did, I, I uh, joined the recreational tennis department, uh, taking tennis lessons because I played tennis in high school and college. So I met a whole new circle of friends who enjoy tennis and who are much younger than I. Mm-hmm. And uh, where I live, I have three tennis courts in uh, our complex. And so they come here and play and I play at different parks and so forth. So that's been a great thing for me to get out and meet new people. And, and of course, they're younger than I and they have different ideas. <laughs> and they may not be wrong. They may not be right. But uh, they have different ideas, surely. I, uh, I do want to say that the fact that you play tennis, which is a notoriously physically difficult sport at 70 years old, is is incredibly impressive so kudos to you thank you (laughs) um so so a little bit about happiness so like i mean i don't know if you were paying attention specifically for this but so i'm gonna put you on the spot a little bit um in your travels did you notice a difference at all in how people interact with the concept of happiness 
You know, is happiness expected everywhere? That kind of thing. Well, I've been to Nepal, which mm-hmm. is a life-changing place. Uh, you have to remember what the expectations are of the people that you're visiting. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who are farmers in Nepal don't have expectations of their children necessarily becoming an astronaut. Yeah. So they may go to university, but uh, they may end up being a doctor. But every country has different expectations or every family has different expectations for their children. And a lot of that is based on the technology and the culture they live in. So for us to think that you have to be a a doctor or a lawyer or some white collar worker to be happy is utter nonsense. Mm-hmm. A very successful farmer is is uh, well respected in his community, as is a, a successful plumber in ours. Yeah. Uh, if you don't have a good plumber, you're in deep trouble. So I think we have to get back to remembering that we're all equally important in this world we live in. What whatever we offer, besides being a decent person, if we offer a trade, or if we're educated and offer a service. We have to remember that everyone is important in that community. Uh, you know, the uh, the garbage collector, maybe a lot of people don't want that job, and maybe a lot of people didn't want my job as a plaster repairman, but they're all necessary, and they make other people's lives better mm-hmm. because they, they get rid of disease, they make the living environment more comfortable. So everyone offers a little bit of this to the community, and I think uh, 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 in, a edu- in a highly educated uh, society, people lose sight of that. And they think that the lawyer and the politician and the doctor are the most important. And that may be true, but everybody else are equally important to someone. <clears throat> that totally makes sense. That totally makes sense um, to me. So you're talking about, you know, the the idea that like, you know, the doctor isn't useful without the garbage man to take his, his garbage away and keep him healthy. Absolutely. You know, like we, we're all pieces of a bigger thing. And I, I really love that answer. So um, can you tell me a little bit about, like, so have you always written? Have you always been a writer? Yes. Uh, When I was in in grammar school, I wrote my first novel in sixth grade. Uh, Of course, it it went in the trash barrel at some point in my moving around. But I've always enjoyed writing. And uh, I didn't do any during my adult lifetime working. I... uh, I went to college. I went to a, 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 I have an AA degree in criminology. It took me six years to get it because I went to school at night and worked during the days. And uh, I didn't have time to write. And once I retired, uh, I found that I was interested in doing that again. And I sat down and, and uh, that process is interesting. You, I can't explain how the, uh, the, that process works. You know, characters <laughs> come to your mind and you pick up a pencil and pretty soon you have a story in front of you. Well, and from the writers that I've spoken with, and I mean, I write a little bit, but not enough to call myself a writer. Um, but the writers I've spoken with, what's really cool about that process is you don't really understand it, but it allows you to explore who you could have been when you write a new character. Like, this could have been me. If What if I thought this way? And it lets you to be, like, allows you to be really, really flexible, especially fiction writing, allows you to be really flexible in exploring all parts of yourself, which is notoriously difficult to do for people. So your writing would be considered historical fiction, right? So it's it's researched, but it's not based on true events. That's right for the most part. I have a couple of detective novels also, and I'm working on a, on a novel that is based on World War II. And so I am going to have to do a lot of research in that book. I just finished a novel called The Eagle's Nest. All The first chapters of all my novels are available on my website at cowboyproductions52.com. And 
the the latest novel I finished is a California historical novel about a house built on the coast of California by a, a wealthy Eastern magnate, and he brings his best pieces of art and stores them in this house because of the climate. And he sails around the tip of South America with his sons and brings a crew of builders, and they build this house in the frontier before California was a state. And it takes place over maybe 20 or 30 years uh, or less. And there's a lot of interesting characters. And so when you're doing that story, when you're writing a story, you get to learn new things. You get to go in and do the research. And I can't, well, I was on a cruise to Iceland. I watched a very interesting program on the Fabergé eggs. There are three Fabergé eggs still missing. Oh. They're in this house that I built in California in my book. <laughs> so Perfect. there's a connection with fiction and reality. And that gave me the impetus to write a story around this program I watched about the Fabergé eggs. So as soon as you start writing, you start creating these characters that are either funny or serious or evil or good. And depending on how you want your story to turn out. And so that little impetus of going to Iceland and seeing that program on that ship helped me write a novel about California. You know, who who saw that coming? Yeah, that's really beautiful. And I think that that is... Um, what's the right word? But like, I think that's a good metaphor for life, right? We Absolutely. have no idea what learning we're going to take into whatever our next project is or our next relationship. Absolutely. And you don't know, I don't, you know, I don't know what you do as a full-time gig, but you don't know what the future holds. You may, in, in a year, you may be doing something completely different than what you're doing now. And uh, you don't know that now. In a year, you might know that. And maybe your life will remain completely the same. But we don't know. Thank goodness. <laughs> yes, thank goodness. I love. I love the way you ended that. Um, yeah, I mean, just to answer your, it wasn't a question, but I'll just. Um, so I'm actually disabled. I have uh, sarcoidosis and fibromyalgia, which are chronic pain conditions. Which means, unfortunately, it's not that I can never work. It's that I never know when I will be able to work, which uh -huh. makes working a traditional job very difficult. So I do the yeah. podcasting and uh, graphic design. But uh, yeah, you're right. Who knows? Who knows? And that yes. that is what like that that is what makes life exciting. You know, those um like you see it in fiction a lot, like you could know the future. And uh like I always think like, who would choose that? Who would want that? <laughs> exactly. We see people around us who are not happy, who have chosen to work in certain endeavors, they get no joy from that, and perhaps they pay their bills, but they're not content. Mm -hmm. And uh, my advice is uh, do something different. I was very fortunate to work for myself and it has its ups and downs and its, its uh, uh, side effects, uh, upset stomach and whatever. But I feel even at this point in my life and through most of my life, I always felt that I could do whatever, what I, I, could do whatever I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. If I needed to get a job right now, I could be a 70-year-old plaster boy. <laughs> I have that trade. And I'm not afraid of having to do that. However, comma, my wife and I plan very carefully for our retirement, which I recommend all of you to do. And I don't have to go out and work anymore because we did that. We thought into the future, we looked into the future and made plans that would make sure that we could eat the good dog food when we were old. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, before before we move on to our super fun game, um, can you tell people exactly where to find you? I know you mentioned your website. Is there anywhere else? Are you on Amazon? 
I'm, I'm on Facebook at RC Hand. There are several interviews there, video and audio interviews I've done. I have my website and travel blog is at cowboyproductions52.com. I write under the name R.C. Hand. And The Adventures of the Smith Family is one of several novels on Amazon. So you can click on Google and look up R.C. Hand author. So I'm out there. Come to my website. It'll send you everywhere. Yes, that's perfect. And just for everyone, I'm sure everyone already knows this, but those links will be in the description of the show. So definitely go check it out. It sounds fascinating. He definitely has enough knowledge to create an interesting um, historical fiction. So I'm I'm very excited. I'm going to I'm going to make it work too. Um, and so, um, are you ready to guess some Generation Z slang? Oh, I'm ready to try. Okay, so how it's going to work is I'm going to just say the word and you tell me if you know what it means or what you think it means. And, oh, why is there an ad there? Okay, what you think it means. And it doesn't really matter. There's not, I'm not keeping track. Most people only get one, right? So you don't have to worry about (laughs) getting it right. Um, What does it mean to say that someone or something is basic? I have no clue. It means someone who is considered unoriginal and likes mainstream things. What does it mean to say bet? I have no clue. (laughs) It's a term of agreement. So if you were like, I'm going to go or do you do you want? Okay, I was thinking of picking a pizza and then I'd say bet. Cool. That makes (laughs) sense. Yeah, it's, uh, oh, what does it mean to say that someone has been canceled? Oh, oh, that's a long conversation. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it means that a lot of people jumped over the edge and uh, aren't happy with somebody, I suppose. Yes, yeah, stop and, supporting and someone. Do things, and are going to do things to make their life very difficult. Yes. Um, we'll do two more. This one you might know, too. What does catch hands mean? You haven't got a clue. It means to uh, start a fight. So, oh, wow. or, or to have a fight started with you. So if someone's like, you're going to catch hands. I hope I don't. <laughs> yeah, me neither. And last but fu- but not least, what does it mean to say cap or no cap? I have no idea. It means lying or not lying. So oh. if I was like, I got to talk to RC Hand today, no cap. That would oh. mean like, no kidding, I'm not lying. Interesting. And so if someone calls cap, that means that they're saying that someone's lying. Interesting. So uh, is there anything you'd like to add before uh, before I thank you very much for coming on and say goodbye to the audience? I, I think that it's just important for everybody to be nice to each other. I think that would be a really good step to uh, making people happier, which is what I'm here for. I fully agree. And thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk to me. This has been a really fun conversation and I just I just really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. So did I. Um, Okay, and to my audience, I love you. Bye.